Sunday, April the 10th. Welcome to this Burlington Audio Podcast. We hope you will be encouraged and inspired in your faith as you listen to this message. We'd love to hear what you think. Please be in touch with us through the website. More information and many more podcasts are all at burlingtonbaptist.org.uk. Thanks for listening. Uh, Matthew chapter 2, a very happy Christmas to you all. Did anyone do a double take and think he's given her the wrong scripture there? You religious lot. (laughs) We are allowed to read Matthew chapter 2 at some other time of year. Um, But yeah, so you could, if, if you heard the heading of what we're doing today, you would understand the context. We're talking about Jesus and the refugees. And before we do, um, aren't the flowers wonderful in this church? Uh, Sneak word said it was Becky this week, is that right? Fabulous. Bless your hearts, all of you who do such things. Um, And I'm sorry we take you for granted so much and so often. So... So it really is time once more to talk about refugees and for us to remind ourselves that it is a subject very close to God's heart. You know, returning to the UK in September 2015, having walked with Syrian and Afghan refugees mainly through uh, southern Europe, I did sessions like this for some churches in the UK, um, maybe here, I can't quite remember, but here we go again. Um, then, 2015, six and a half years ago, there were just over 60 million refugees and IDPs, that's inter- internally displaced people, those who are have had to flee but are still within the boundaries of their own nation. Um, Their plight, as you remember in those days, was constantly in our news for weeks and weeks, only to be knocked off top spot by Brexit, and then by COVID, and then by the war in Ukraine. But surely that figure of 60 million displaced people in 2015 was the peak. Well, sadly, no. By mid-2021, this is before the Ukraine crisis, the UNHCR estimated that global forced displacement had surpassed 82 million people, um, be they IDPs, refugees or asylum seekers. Now, 68%, if you can cope with a few stats this morning, 68% were from five countries, That's Syria, Venezuela, Afghanistan, South Sudan, and Myanmar. Um, I think we should remember as well that all these terms, please, do not define a person. They are merely an aspect of their present, hopefully temporary, status. And although, like the vast majority of us here, Some will also aspire to improved standards of living. These are not economic migrants. Although considerable numbers will be poor and uneducated, that's 
often the most marginalized, isn't it, who are particularly vulnerable to disaster or abuse or displacement. Um, many others will have significant means and a superb level of higher education. Refugees are not the poor. They are the displaced. Very simple. You get it, but it's worthy of saying again. So 85% were hosted in developing countries, interestingly enough. 39% were hosted in just five countries, Turkey, Colombia, Uganda, Pakistan, and Germany. Probably if we did a quiz, none of us would get the answer right to that one. And part of the rim, a significant part of the reason is that 73% of refugees are hosted in neighboring countries. So when I was in uh, on the Romanian and Moldovan borders a couple of weeks ago, um, it was very clear that uh, it was only the minority of Ukrainians that really wanted to go as far away as somewhere like the UK. Um, they wanted to be in neighboring countries in case they could go back, um, in Slavic countries for cultural reasons, in Russian-speaking countries for reasons of language. Um, also, back to the global figures. Are we all right? Am I a bit boomy here? Is it okay? Okay. Um, an estimated 42%, that's 35 million, of the global displaced people were children. And one million of these children were born as refugees. This is what I said in 2015. I did. Honest. Is that not going to work? It really doesn't matter. We can skip on from there if you want. My name is Alan. What's it? What's it? What's it? Oh, thank you. That's really nice. So uh, we're here with Samaritan's person in Belgrade, Serbia, this evening. Uh, it's a rainy evening. Not everyone's as happy as this young man. Um, you can probably see in the car park behind us, they're trying to get shelter. Um, on the way through, many refugees coming. Uh, we've got people tonight in uh, uh, down in Greece. Hi, how are you? We've got people in Greece um, and then in Macedonia <laughs> and here in, in Serbia. Is that where we are tonight? In Belgrade. And then uh, a lot of these people are making their way uh, up into Europe, as you know. Um, so Samaritan's Purse in each of these countries seeking to just bring kindness and friendship in the name of Jesus um, to people who are travelling. Some of them don't even know where they're going on to. Um, but uh, thank you very much for your prayers and support for these refugees. Okay? okay. How do we do? Okay. All right? <laughs> and so a couple of weeks ago, I was back there again with more refugees travelling into and through Central Europe, uh, this time on the borders of Ukraine, Romania and Moldova. Um, this, let's try this. Maybe a little bit long, but just to give you a flavour. You've seen so much of this on, on, the, on the news in the last few weeks anyway, but maybe this will personalise it a little bit more. Hi, so we're at so probably what is the main border crossing between 
Romania and Ukraine uh, this afternoon. Uh, this is my friend and colleague Camilla, um, who was here what, six days ago. Yeah, last Wednesday. And you brought, uh, well, you were actually in a convoy that went right into one of the major towns in. Yeah. In, in Ukraine. How does this compare in terms of numbers of people, atmosphere, etc.? Well, to be honest, I was so distraught last time I was here because I was seeing for the first time really just the amount of people who were walking across uh, the border and we were seeing them carrying teddy bears and pets and suitcases and blankets because it was freezing cold. I mean, this is comfortable. Yes. I mean, this is comfortable. We can we can relax here mm. now, but at that time it was so so cold. Um, and now it seems a lot lighter, both the temperature but also the atmosphere. Um, it could have something to do with the fact that I was in a humanitarian convoy driving yeah. into Ukraine. It yeah. might change my perception a little bit but and just tell me i mean it's interesting today we've seen almost as many ukrainian cars going back into ukraine as we have coming out yeah. um what's that all about i i think it has to do with the ukrainian spirit of wanting to actually still be in ukraine and support their country and and the people who are still there a lot of the people that we've met and talked to first of all they didn't want to leave ukraine and second of all, when they left, they were obviously torn apart about it, but also a lot of them thinking, what can we do to help? Yeah. So yeah. I'm, I'm assuming a lot of the people driving back are driving back with supplies and things uh, mm. to help their friends and family and their people. Mm. And you're an experienced NGO worker. What do you feel when you come to a place like this? How do I feel? Um, it's terrible. It's just terrible that it's happening here. But at the same time, I am I am relieved that there is a system in place, that there are so many people willing to help, and that there is police making sure that everything is, mm -hmm. is clear and the processes are, mm -hmm. are, are clean. And Do you want to explain just what we encountered with the police a few minutes ago? Yeah, so when we were coming in here, we were stopped by the police um, who asked us for our papers to check our documents to see that we actually have something to do here that is uh, legit legitimate and uh, we had to show our papers and explain who we were here with last time um, to make Re sure that we're not... Do you want to repeat uh, the last sentence because it stopped for some reason? So we were stopped by, by the police as we were coming in here because they wanted to check that we're legitimate and that we have a purpose for being here because there's a lot of actors who want to take advantage of the situation who maybe don't have such good intentions. Um, and so for that reason, we, we were stopped and they checked and they asked all the right questions and that makes me so relieved because it tells me that they're on top of things and they're making sure the process is uh, as safe as it can be, really. Camilla from Holy Logos, thank you very much. Thank you, Alan. Sorry, the, the, it's quite difficult to hear, I think, but thank you for bearing with that.
uh, you hopefully picked up that Camilla was talking there about the safeguarding measures that the Romanian police were undertaking, very encouragingly, actually, um, ensuring that they gave safety briefing to all who crossed the border. Let me tell you some of the stories that impacted me. I looked in the direction of two policemen who were not unkindly but merely with functionality directing a simple woman in her 40s and her son to their tent for their initial briefing. An older woman followed them a few paces behind. Citizens of Ukraine, the second largest country in Europe, when they woke this morning, they had, against all their expectations of a few weeks ago, become refugees the moment they had crossed the Romanian border five minutes previously. My mere glance in their direction was all it took for me to register the nature of this disaster in a whole new way. The boy was about 10 or 11, and he wore his coat not over his shoulders, but hunched protectively over his head. The expression on his mother's face, her her body language, her, her gait, cut me up deeply and took my breath away. She looked utterly bewildered, like a lamb being led to the slaughter, numbed by deep shock and she followed two unknown policemen into a completely unknown country in an utterly unknown future. And with a hand on her son's shoulder, she she gently steered him along, a touch that was, quite obviously, as much for her reassurance as it was for his. I don't know their circumstances, where they'd come from, who they'd left behind, or, or where they think they were headed, but I really trust they've found kind people to help them through this dreadfully traumatic experience. Arriving as we had just minutes earlier, it was obvious that it would have been far too intrusive to ask any questions of these refugees. They didn't want to talk to strangers. Maybe in the West people would want to talk, to tell their story for the umpteenth time, and maybe draw some comfort from their listeners. But these are Ukrainians... They're proud, solid, stoic people from a Slavic land, hard-working, not greatly given to demands of their human rights or too concerned for their mental health, at least not for the moment. They are excitable and volatile when they want to be, but generally they are a nation of people who roll up their sleeves and get on with what needs to be done. But our friend, host and partner, Liviu, who is the husband of Camilla, who you just saw, had met a few of the workers on his visit to the border a week or so earlier. He introduced us to Vadim, and Vadim was happy to talk. This is Vadim, Levy told us. He helped set up the convoy we drove in, into Ukraine last week. Vadim, late teens or 20 by my initial reckoning, was a cool dude, wearing a black Nike T-shirt under a black hoodie and a black Mercedes baseball cap perched at an angle on his head. The only splash of colour was from the big official translator badge that hung from uh, the black Mercedes lanyard around his neck. He hopped from one foot to another, each shoulder dropping in turn, as if he were exercising on an invisible treadmill or riding uphill on a bike. As a young Ukrainian living very near the border with Romania, Vadim had grown up speaking both languages. He spoke no English, but with Liviu's intrinsic Romanian and my dreadful and faltering Russian, we were able to have a chat. 
And in between several interruptions, that is, Vadim was much in demand. Are you working? I asked him. (laughs) He looked at me and laughed. No, I'm 15. Double take from me. I guess he did look 15, but it was the job he was doing and the way so many people were dependent on him that made me think he was 20. He'd been travelling over the border each morning for five or six weeks, coordinating convoys, liaising with the police on the front line, linking refugees with aid workers, giving SIM cards out to those who had crossed into Romania, setting up phone charging stations and giving them food and drinks. And then, each evening, he would cross back into war-torn Ukraine and go home to his mum. So was this a part of your plan in life, you know, to help people? What were your dreams before the war started? Did you want to study and travel? Adam looked at me again, mystified, eyes that said, what planet has this man come from? No, of course not. I just wanted to ride my bike with my mates. I bet you've learned a lot in the last few weeks, I said, somewhat unnecessarily. Vadim's response was merely to exhale, puffing out the affirmative response of a boy who'd become a man almost overnight. We chatted some more, leave you able to give him food, compassionate big brother encouragement. When this is all over, you get back to school, eh? Vadim agreed. It's not easy for a young Ukrainian lad to submit himself to vulnerability, but he was clearly receiving energy from this supportive attention. And all the while Vadim hopped his silent rap, eyes exhausted, but still animated, respectful, engaged, energetic, and smiling. Smiling, that is, until I gave him a big hug. Physically, that wasn't easy. The stiff peak of his baseball cap clunked awkwardly into my forehead. But he wasn't resistant. And when we let each other go, those smiling eyes were distinctly wet. I must go and help, he said, fighting off his pain and exhaustion with yet more worthy action. Look after him, Lord, I prayed as he left. Look after him. And then as we left Vadim, we were greeted in the road by a smiling Christian lady from Crimea. Now living in Manchester, Inga, here as a volunteer interpreter, recognised the Samaritan's Purse logo on the jacket. Hey, you're Christians, she declared with enthusiasm. What she hadn't realised was that Samaritan's Purse was the host organisation of Operation Christmas Child. And when we told her, she instantly burst into tears. Oh, I'm in my late thirties now, but when I was little I received a shoebox and it was so precious to me, she exclaimed, dabbing tears from her eyes. I cannot believe I'm meeting the people who sent it. Hmm. So what does the Bible teach about refugees? Or where do we start? Genesis 1, God says, let us make man in our Image in our likeness and let them rule over the fish, the birds, the livestock, etc. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him male and female, he created them. 
all human beings are made in the image of God. Every human being from every nation and every language who has ever lived bears the image of God and therefore is to be recognised as fully human and given that dignity. Were there refugees in the Bible? Yeah, just a few. We meet all sorts of people in the Bible, Jews, Gentiles, rich, poor, strong, weak, hundreds are mentioned by name, millions more are mentioned by their tribe or nation. And among them are refugees and IDPs normally referred to or often referred to, depending which version you're looking in your Bible, as aliens or strangers, not always, but the noun alien occurs over a hundred times in the Old Testament alone. And other times different language is used, but it's nonetheless clear from the context that we're talking about those who were forcibly displaced from their homes and their neighbourhoods. You know, this may be touching hearts specific to your circumstance today, and I'm not sure if that's so or not, but there are among us as we walk in town, there is among us as we meet in church, there are among us as we work, those who personally know the trauma, the pain, the fundamental angst of being forcibly displaced from their homes and their neighbourhoods. And of course today we use different words to describe various peoples moving into Western Europe, migrants, refugees, asylum seekers, etc. And we tend to make distinctions between them, often on a political or legal basis, and usually how do I say this, through a consumeristic or a cultural lens. In other words, we're primarily concerned about economy and integration. So amongst these ones, think of Abram, who became Abraham, Genesis 12, called by God to leave the land of the Chaldeans and journey to the land he would show him. So the land of Canaan was promised to Abraham, But do you know how much of it he actually owned during his lifetime? One plot. A burial site for his wife Sarah. That's all he owned in his lifetime. And so he defined his status in Cana as being an alien, a foreigner and a stranger. Genesis 23. Or we could look at Joseph and his family and then all of the people of Israel. They all became refugees. Because of famine, they were forced to leave Canaan, move to Egypt, where they remained 400 years. Or we could think of Moses. He became a refugee, fleeing Egypt and living in Midian for 40 years. And in Exodus 2, he refers to himself as an alien, and even named his son Gershom. If we had time, we'd look at Ger and what that meant, alien in the land. Or we could think about the book of Ruth. You know, it's a story about refuge and refugees. They were forced by famine in Judah. Um, Well, actually, her mother-in-law, Naomi, was forced to move to Moab, but after the death of her husband and boys, she returned to Judah, and Ruth, her Moabite daughter-in-law, went with her, and she entered the land of Judah as an alien. So, you know, the book just gives us a detailed, most beautiful, tender-hearted account of how the Levitical law is applied to refugees. And Ruth, of course, belongs to the family line from which Jesus would come. We could look at Prophet Jeremiah. He was a war refugee. 
When the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem, Jeremiah and some others escaped to Egypt and remained there until their deaths. So all these Old Testament people, heroes, I'm not quite sure about calling people in the Bible here. I think there's only one hero in the Bible. But, you know, the rest of them, which is quite a relief to me, made a complete mess of things from time to time. But let's call them heroes for the sake of argument today. So all these Old Testament heroes were aliens, strangers in the land. They were vulnerable. They were needing to lean on the hospitality of their hosts. And it's clear from all these examples that being a refugee is definitely not, by definition, something negative. I know you know that, but I'm saying it again, just so we really, really understand. It's not sinful, it's not unacceptable, it's not slightly lesser. It's not to do with people's manipulation or their poverty. It's circumstantial. It can happen to us all. So the Bible not only gives us stories of refugees, but also provides teaching on how we should respond to such people. And the law stipulated how the people of God were to treat non-believers who sought refuge in the land of Israel. Uh, I don't know, how much time have we got? We could just look at a few of them. Do not mistreat them. Do not oppress an alien. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the alien. When an alien leaves, lives within your land, do not mistreat him again. The alien living within you must be treated as one of your native-born. Love him as yourself. That takes things up to another level. So this is obviously a, 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 an issue that is really, really important, fundamental to the character of God. If we are of his people, we need to really digest this as one of the foundations of how he is and therefore how he wants us to be. So in summary, Israel was not to mistreat or oppress aliens. They were to welcome, to love, to care, to provide for them, not just let them in and tolerate them. There is no sense in which the attitude is, well, we'll let you in, but once you're in, you must fend for yourselves. This was about an ongoing relationship, open-heartedness and provision. And what's more, it's clear from the teaching of the Old Testament this wasn't just a pragmatic, relational or societal issue, but it was deeper than that. It was deeply spiritual. It was about issues of covenant and of justice. So, for example, and we've had one of them already, an issue of covenant. You know, pretty fundamental, isn't it? Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus talked about it. But in the same context, in the same chapter, he said exactly the same. Love and the alien as yourself. Or an issue of justice. God said, you know, there's an issue of judgment here. I'll be quick to testify against all these people, those who defraud, those who oppress the widows and the fatherless, and those who deprive aliens of justice. It's pretty fundamental, really. Aliens also had obligations as well, of course. For instance, they were to abide to the law of Israel you are to have the same law for the alien and the native-born. I am the Lord your God. That's Leviticus 24. You know, Ruth didn't march into Judah loudly demanding her human rights, did she? She came with humility, with gratitude, and was ready to work hard. And then, of course, the life and ministry of Jesus has plenty to teach us about the treatment of refugees. Um, our reading was Matthew chapter 2 when we got our minds around it wasn't a Christmas story 
It outlined Jesus' own experience of being a refugee and his parents and him being forced to flee not only from Bethlehem, Judah, Judea, but entering Egypt as refugees. So I guess it's no wonder he was able to identify so comfortably, so personally with people like the centurion in Matthew 8 or the Samaritan woman in John 4 or chose when he talked to the rich young ruler in Luke 10 to tell the story of the good Samaritan, you know, a socially despised alien in the land. But have you ever considered Jesus as the stranger, the alien, the sojourner, who had belonged since before the world began to the commonwealth of heaven and who was forced to come to the earth because of my sinfulness. So in John 1 we read, he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. And you know, there's, a, there's an, like an incidental verse at the end of John 7, John, very beginning of John 8, And whenever I read it, it always strikes me of Jesus' alienation, the the loneliness he must have experienced on earth. And it's simply this. Then they all went home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Jesus had to learn how to hang loose from earthly pleasures and comforts and security. And what's more, so do we. As those who have died with Christ and are raised to sit with him in heavenly places, we're described in 1 Peter as strangers in the world and exiles. We are merely still here on earth to act as ambassadors in the embassy of heaven. This is how the New Testament teaches about who we are in Christ. We just sung it in a song. We need to understand it. need to to live that way. I have been... Baptism meant I died with Christ. I've been raised, not just to have a nice towel wrapped around me and a Bible verse given to me. I've been raised and seated with Christ in heavenly places. That's how he sees me. Hang on a minute. No, you're not. You're still in here. And it's, yeah, I'm here merely to be an ambassador um, in the embassy of heaven on earth. And I can even tell you which department we've been placed in. It's the ministry of reconciliation. It's 2 Corinthians 5. This is the teaching of the New Testament. So, dear aliens and strangers on earth, let's welcome the aliens and strangers, be they Ukrainians or Syrians or Afghans or from wherever, into our town. And this is merely a brief summary, of course. And if we have time, we might look at these things a little more at some point during the Good Mission course. Um, which incidentally, or more than incidentally, started last Thursday. I was planning to continue for three weeks, but so many people are away, as you can see, um, this week, that I'm going to delay it for a week. So week two will be, what did we say, the, something like the 20th, only Thursday week anyway. So we'll just slip it back and include the first week of May. So if you'd like to be a part of that and didn't connect with it on last Thursday, please let me know. Uh, there's still still space and opportunity. And also then, um, if you would like to volunteer to be on the Together for Ipswich team, that is the, that is the united voice of the 83 churches in Ipswich, uh, in liaison and conjunction with 
local authorities and all the other players in the town to have a coordinated approach to um, receiving uh, Ukrainian refugees particularly, but broader than that. Um, then please see me, I'm coordinating that through Together for Ipswich. Um, so far it's taken 820 emails and a whole lot of other stuff as well. And no one told me when you get to 70 how busy you're going to be. Um, but I need a point person for every church and haven't actually got one for here specifically yet, although you're all wonderful. And there's nine other volunteer roles, probably two to five hours per week. Together for Ipswich.uk will give you more information. But they include things like prayer coordinating, coordinator, a matching officer, you know, hosts with guests, uh, someone to keep up with all the research for the new developments and government announcements, an administrator, IT people, people um, who would have their finger on the pulse as far as health and education, housing, etc. So there's any number of things on there on togetherforipswich.uk. So thank you very much. Very practical session. Um, I think we should pray, don't you? And, uh, yeah, so let's do that. I just wonder, just in response, really, how... How rigidly does our manual for life, the Word of God, allow us to control our borders? Where are the, where are we building walls rather than bridges? Holy Spirit, we allow you today to speak into our hearts. We acknowledge that you have called us your ambassadors and reconciler, those who reconcile. We would ask you, Holy Spirit, to spotlight any areas which might have become too, where we've maybe become too settled behind our embassy desks, too self-protective. Show us where we need to hang a little less tightly to national identity, to homeland, to property, to possessions. And as we do that, Lord, we do pray for peace in the world. We pray for peace in Ukraine and in Russia and in South Sudan and Myanmar and Afghanistan and Syria and other places that we hold dear or we know people. Bless those nations that host the displaced. We ask you, Father, bring reconciliation through mercy and judgment, dialogue, but let mercy triumph over justice. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, boy band. Please return. Oh, I should say, actually, these, um, this is part of um, Together for Ipswich. There's, uh, there's all sorts of it. It's not just 
can I host a family in my home? There's all sorts of um, soft support that's going on in between that which the local authorities um, are providing. And one of the things that Archdeacon Rhiannon has initiated is these fantastic bags, worth about £50 each or something. There's really nice stuff in there. So we'll have a couple of these here, and if you're around or um, those particularly from Ukraine, this is who would arrive here in any way. Um, just another aspect of our welcome. Thank you.